Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's good to be back on the air. And when I was on the air last with you all a few days ago, I told you the next time I would uh, talk to you all more about where my wife and I um, had recently vacationed. I did mention to you all that we were in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So this podcast episode, um, I will be discussing to you all about our trip. Of course, it would take an eternity to discuss the whole trip, but I'd like to discuss with you all what I feel is appropriate and necessary to share, because to me, Philadelphia is a very special place. Regardless of whether we live in the United States or in another part of the world, it's important to understand why Philadelphia is such a significant place because the city alone really did help shape America's democracy. So this podcast episode basically is titled as follows. On assignment from July 3rd to July 10th of 2021, vacationing in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I find it very hard to believe that a week ago, my wife and I were vacationing up north in Philadelphia a.k.a. the city of brotherly love. For some people, Philadelphia to them gets associated with food. What do I mean by food? How about the Philly cheesesteak? Or some people might think a roast pork sandwich, but more than likely a cheesesteak. Whereas others, like my wife and I, saw this city as one (coughs) whose history helped lay the foundations for religious diversity, bringing the 13 colonies together as one nation in declaring separation from England to serving as America's capital from 1790 to 1800. Interesting about religious diversity, folks. I I didn't know this, and I don't know if many of you all would know, but I will share it with you all. Philadelphia had become a, um, a religious haven for uh, other sects of um, Protestantism where those people had been excluded from being able to worship um, freely, that is, worship their faith freely. Uh, you know, like, for example, in Virginia, the only church one could um, practice their faith would be that from the Anglican Church or the Church of England. And even if you were not... Um, a member of the Church of England, your taxes still had to go to that church. But in Philadelphia, it turns out that um, that was really the only city that welcomed um, Catholics. In other words, Catholics were freely, were rather, I should say, they were able to freely worship or uh, practice their faith without any fear of uh, religious persecution. Nowhere else in colonial America were Catholics able to um, able to worship freely like they were able to in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia really becomes a religious haven for uh, for a, a multitude of um, religious faiths. And something else I um, had to remind myself in terms of um, religious diversity uh, on an individual basis. It's not so much a reminder, but it was someone whose name that I know very well. But I saw a statue of him, and I'm just very thankful that I saw the statue of him, because if I hadn't, I would have forgotten the complete connection. Most of you all probably don't know who uh, Uriah Levy is. Well, I'm here to tell you all about Uriah Levy. Uriah Levy was the first um, Jewish military commander in the United States Navy. And yes, uh, during his time, there was anti-Semitism in America. Of course, when I think of anti-Semitism, I often think of what was associated in the world leading up to World War II when Adolf Hitler was in um, control and running uh, Germany. Uriah Levy was born in 1792 hard to believe um, when he was born, uh, George Washington was president. He was born, Levy himself was born in Philadelphia. But as he got older, 
Levy became more and more um, appreciative of what Thomas Jefferson had stood for. And what is that, folks? There were many things Jefferson stood for, but one of them was for uh, religious freedom. Well, when Thomas Jefferson died in 1826, he died close to $110,000 in debt. And so, um, unfortunately, nobody in his family was able to um, take over Monticello because of the uh, family's uh, financial dire because of the dire uh, financial problems the family was facing. So what I do know is that two years after Jefferson's death, a uh, doctor by the name of Dr. Barclay inherited Monticello, or not inherited it, but he, rather he bought it, but didn't stay there long, and it stayed dormant until 1834 when Mr. Uriah Levy buys Monticello and goes about restoring it. He lives there off and on until 1862 when he dies. Uriah, on the other hand, never married, but he had several nieces and nephews whom um, had more than one uh, court dispute over who was going to uh, inherit Monticello or who would live there. Finally, the court agreed to leave it to uh, Uriah's nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, Okay, Jefferson being named after Thomas Jefferson and Monroe after James Monroe. Jefferson Monroe Levy inherited Monticello in 1879. He inherits Monticello, and basically, you know, Uriah was the first to um, really uh, safeguard Monticello, but it was his nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, who really was the true savior of Monticello. So the reason why I'm mentioning this family, folks, is that it took an outsider um, who had no ties to Virginia, an outsider who had been um, court-martialed six times, all because of anti-Semitic-related activities, but yet still remained in the Navy. It took a, a family um, who's, if you think about it, um, Jews, unfortunately, have had many um, issues since the beginning of time in, uh, in, in being accepted for who they are. Obviously, that was a, a terrible uh, ordeal that people of Jewish faith dealt with in World War II with the Holocaust. But had it not been for uh, the Levy family, Thomas Jefferson's home would have been completely destroyed. So anytime any of you all go to Monticello, please thank the Levy family. And there, um, and there is a um, a great um, what do I call it? Not a um, exhibit, but uh, the Levies. In the last thirty-five years, the Levy family has been brought back to life. Uh, for the longest time after Jefferson Monroe Levy died in nineteen twenty-four, the Monticello Foundation came in, which was fine, but they pretty much um, started to uh, deliberately forget what the Levies had done. And to me, that was a disgrace. But thank heavens, uh, leadership over these last 35 years have um, have helped um, bring the levies back to life because they were the saviors of Thomas Jefferson's estate. So anytime you go to Philadelphia, make sure to see the statue of Uriah Levy. And when you go to Monticello, you also need to think of Uriah Levy and his nephew Jefferson Monroe Levy. And again... If it weren't for the Levy families, there would probably be no Monticello as we know it today. So, um, coming to Philadelphia had been on our vacation travel spot list for some time. Last year was tough for many cities like Philadelphia, whose historic venues were closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. How fortunate my wife and I were to have chosen Philadelphia in 2021 as our vacation spot. But reopening a city takes time. And what do you know, that as time went along, other venues opened up, which enabled us to better plan in the months leading up to July. I will admit that it could very well take an eternity to discuss everything my wife and I accomplished via sightseeing, but I'll promise to make this podcast episode, like all others before, entertaining and relevant. Okay, 
So let's fasten our seatbelts and learn as much as there is possible about the city of brotherly love. <coughs> Philadelphia, like so many other made, I'll rephrase that. Philadelphia, like so many other major American cities, is comprised of districts. Is it fair to say that more time got spent on our end visiting Philadelphia's historic district? The answer is yes. Six out of seven days were primarily spent touring Philadelphia's historic district, which is home to such venues as Congress Hall, Carpenters Hall, Independence Hall, Betsy Ross House, Benjamin Franklin Museum, Declaration House, Museum of the American Revolution, Constitution Center, to name a few places. Does anybody want to take a guess at just how many venues uh, my wife and I visited overall while vacationing in Philadelphia? Was it, I'll give you a number, it was between um, 15 and 20. The answer is 15. 15 may not seem like the biggest number, but when I consider how much time we spent at the museums that we visited, as well as other, you know, just venues, we got our money's worth and we made the most out of every moment. But I, what I'm going to start doing here now, folks, is I'm going to talk to you all about a few uh, venues that my wife and I did get to visit in Philadelphia. Does anybody know how Carpenter's Hall got its name? Well, I think we all know what, carpen what a carpenter does, right? A carpenter helps uh, go about, you know, building a home. That's usually what I think of when I hear uh, the word carpenter. But how Carpenter's Hall got its name is rather interesting. The building itself is named in honor of Carpenter's Company of the City and County of Philadelphia. It turns out that Carpenter's Hall is the oldest craft guild, and another word for guild, folks, is organization. Carpenter's Hall is the oldest uh, craft guild or rather, not Carpenter's Hall, folks, but the uh, Carpenter's Company of the City and County of Philadelphia is the oldest craft guild organization in the United States that dates back to 1724. And if I'm not mistaken, um, wasn't Benjamin Franklin born really at, at the start of the 18th century? Yes, he was born in 1706. So that tells us right there, folks, that Benjamin Franklin would have been about 18 years old when the Carpenters Company of the City and County of Philadelphia was first established. Um, I can tell you this much, Samuel Adams, he's only two years old. Of course, he's, from Ma he's born in Massachusetts, but he's only two years old. George Washington's not even alive just yet, folks. Uh, Thomas Jefferson won't be born for another 20 years. So, and even by 1724... There's still 12 colonies that have been settled. It won't be for another eight or nine years till the last of the 13 colonies gets established in uh, the New World, being that of Georgia. So it just goes to show you, it's not so much a year, folks, that we can learn about, but we can also be reminded of what is going on in the world at this time, what is around what has been established as a colony, and what still remains open to be established as a colony. Well, does anybody know what's important about Carpenter's Hall? It, Carpenter's Hall was where the first Continental Congress met from September 5th to October 26th of 1774, in response to Parliament's passage of the infamous Coercive Acts brought on by the Boston Tea Party's actions for, from December of 1773. Okay, in December of 1773, what are Bostonians angry about? They are angry over the fact that, well, for one, they are happy that, that a majority of the um, 
what do you call it, uh, tangible items that had been taxed under those Townshend um, acts, like the lead, paper, paint, and glass. The taxes on those items have been uh, repealed, meaning they've been removed, no longer um, valid. They're upset over the fact that the T is still there. They don't like the fact that they're being forced to pay a tax on something that Bostonians it's not so much a question they don't want to drink. I mean, sure, I'm sure many Bostonians don't mind having a glass of tea or a cup of tea. They just don't want to pay a tax on it because the tax is another example of a direct violation without proper consent. So the East India Company, which is the uh, company that um, England has sponsored, this company is pretty much going bankrupt, but the only way they can make profitable um, money is to uh, sell not so much sell the tea but uh, bring it into Boston's Harbor in hopes that um, it will um, not only clear customs but that it will um, make it on the mark sell it on the market in the hopes that people will buy it and also pay the tax on it and just get the whole melee process over but in the end um, hundreds of protesters um, dress up like Indians seize the ship that the tea is on and dump over 300 chests of tea into the Charles River. And as a result of those actions, that's when Parliament, in March of 1774, passes the Coercive Acts. The coerce, one of the measures behind the Coercive Acts, folks, remember? I've said it a million times, maybe I'll say it again. The Port of Boston got closed. That meant that all goods that were to be coming in and out of Massachusetts now would go north of Boston to Salem. And then uh, people who, who uh, committed offenses, not only in Massachusetts, but in the other colonies, would be tried overseas in England rather than in their own home state. So, and remember this, folks, a prominent Virginian called upon fasting, that is to... Um, pray for those in Boston, but eventually send what we might call now in today's time humanitarian relief, Thomas Jefferson. He was the one that called for the day of fasting, and other colonies like South Carolina, as far south, Virginia, and even um, other colonies nearby uh, led the efforts to send uh, provisions to Massachusetts. But as other colonies or rather, as other colonial leaders said, if what happened in Boston took place, their own home, uh, their own hometowns would be next. In other words, other ports would be vulnerable, like Charleston, South Carolina, New York City, just to name a few. So that's why these men are uh, meeting in at um, at Carpenter's Hall. They are meeting there. To in response to Parliament's uh, passage of these infamous coercive acts. So what did, um, what was the chief accomplishment or chief end result of the First Continental Congress? It resulted in all, in 12 of the 13 colonies present whom all agreed upon boycotting British goods. What does boycotting mean, folks? It means that you are, um, that you are putting a halt on, um, on, um, in this case, wanting to buy anything coming from overseas into your country. So the boycott on British goods, or what we now know as the non-importation agreements, began on December 1st of 1774. And does anybody know which one of the 13 colonies was not present at this uh, time? Uh, Georgia. Why Georgia? Because Georgia is busy fighting a war against the Creek Indian Nation, and who do they need support from in terms of military assistance? England, a.k.a. the King and Parliament. Alright, now moving on to our second uh, building that, um, that is worth sharing with all of you. What's unique about Congress Hall? Well, the building itself served as Congress's official seat from December 6, 1790 to May 14, 1800. Does anybody know where the previous Capitol was before um, 
the capital relocated to Philadelphia? The answer is New York City. That's where George Washington was first sworn in as president in April of 1789. So I'm sure many of you all are wondering, um, how come the capital didn't stay in Philadelphia altogether? Um, you know, I, I know the answers because I uh, learned about it last week while my wife and I were in Philadelphia. But on the other hand, it might be better for me to save that information for when we get to um, the Pennsylvania delegation in the book that we are currently discussing, Signing Their Rights Away, The Fame and Misfortune of the Men Who Signed the U.S. Constitution. So I will save that information when we uh, discuss the, um, the Pennsylvania um, delegation. But anyways, here are some important um, information about um, the time in which uh, the Capitol was in Philadelphia and what all um, took place that is of a significant relevance. You know, um, when uh, our government was created, we still had 13 states. We still had 13 states being the original 13 colonies. But from 17, after the start of 1790, up until 1800, three new states got admitted into the Union. Does anybody want to take a guess at what three states they could, be, could have been? Well, I'll give you some choices. Choice A would be the following. Here we go. Choice A is at Indiana, Ohio, Illinois. Choice B, Vermont, Kentucky, Tennessee. Choice C, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi. What do you all think? Which three states? The answer is choice B, Vermont, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So that means uh, by the time the capital no longer, um, rather I should say by the time um, Philadelphia is nearing the end of its existence as the nation's capital in 1800, that means we have gone from 13 states to now 16. That is quite a leap. In, uh, in that is quite a big leap for mankind in terms of states, uh, in terms of overall states now in the Union. Another big landmark was the Bill of Rights, aka the first ten amendments, got implemented in Philadelphia. Matter of fact, uh, seeing the inside of Congress Hall was very, um, it was very, um, how do I call it? Um, Powerful, and, and the same for Carpenter's Hall, rather, too. I mean, Carpenter's Hall is not a huge building, but yet it housed <clears throat> all of those who were present in 1774 at the First Continental Congress. And to think that 12 out of 13 colonies were present, that is, delegates. I even saw uh, chairs that resembled what I would see at Colonial Williamsburg. And I forgot to mention this, but I'll just mention it here real quick. As we all know, on the when looking at, the, at a, a copy of the De Declaration of Independence, whose signature is the largest? John Hancock's. He was president of the Continental Congress. But it turns out that John Hancock could be considered the accidental president. Who was the original president? His name is Peyton Randolph of Virginia. What happened to Peyton Randolph? Peyton Randolph sadly um, died of a stroke in 1775. He was, between, he was in his early 50s. And had Peyton Randolph not died, his signature would have been the largest on the Declaration of Independence. I mean, who's not to say that John Hancock still would have been a signer but it just goes to show you that when one leader dies, another leader rises up to where his signature becomes the largest. And sometimes history changes in ways that we don't expect. But regardless of the circumstances, both Peyton Randolph and John Hancock were both prominent men of their time. You know, um, when we visited Congress Hall, the first floor was the House of Representatives, and we went up to the 
upstairs in the second floor was where the Senate debated. And you know, something else that's interesting too about Congress Hall was that <coughs> George Washington uh, was inaugurated there for his second term. But then something else happened. A transfer of power. Usually when I think of transfer of power, it's from one political party to another. But more often than not, it's easy to forget that transfer of power also involves the party from within. Well, George Washington was a Federalist. John Adams was a Federalist. John Adams was George Washington's vice president for eight years. And, of course, John Adams often said that the vice presidency was the loneliest um, title. And he had a good point about that because uh, Washington never invited him to any meetings. I don't know why. He just didn't. But John Adams became our second president in 1797. And the first act of power, or rather the first act of power transfer, took place in 1797 when Washington himself stepped down after two terms. And how ironic it was in 1797, when, um, or in 1796, as Washington was stepping down, it was in Philadelphia that he delivered his farewell address. But his farewell address was one that warned about the imminent dangers, or the, fact, the dangers that factions posed. And what he meant by factions, folks, was political parties. I think George Washington would still be saying the same thing today. And that political parties, while yes, they may serve a purpose, more often than not, political parties can divide people at times more so than unifying them. If somebody asked me what my, or rather if someone asked me what was my favorite um, historic landmark in Philadelphia, or rather in Philadelphia's Old City District, I would have to say Independence Hall. There is more to this building's history besides what took place on July 4th, 1776. How so? Well, for starters, Philadelphians had requested that a new state house be built as early as 1729. But it wasn't until 1733, being four years later, that all parties involved in this project finally agreed to construct the building where it stands today at Chestnut Street between 5th and 6th Streets. Pennsylvania's colonial government convened at the State House from 1732 to 1799. You know what's interesting about those two years from start to finish? 1732 just so happened to be the same year George Washington was born. and 1799, it was also the year that he passed away. That, to me, is a very odd coincidence. However, the building itself was built between 1732 and 1755. We have to remember that uh, buildings don't get built overnight. They do take time, and sometimes those behind the architectural work do bicker over where the perfect location ought to be for the building itself. So we should keep in mind that... Um, Legislators whom, um, whom were elected to represent Pennsylvania's colonial government were even in this building while it was still being built between 1732 until 1755. You know, it's one thing to see Independence Hall from a reading book or even from a postcard or television, but seeing it in person was powerful in my opinion. When I walked inside, or rather my wife and I walked inside, we were in just absolute awe. I mean, it was like stepping back in time. But then again, that's the objective. You have to step back in time. And I can only imagine what had to have been going through the minds of those men present from May 10th, 1775, the start of the Second Continental Congress, which convened in Philadelphia up until 1783, but when I think of the Second Continental Congress at its um, peak, I think of that period from May 10th of 1775 to July 4th, 1776. 
I had to remind myself that many men present didn't know one another beforehand. There were men in attendance like Samuel Adams, including his cousin John, and John Hancock of Massachusetts, whom already had their minds set upon independence, a.k.a. separation from England, whereas others, or rather other men, were hesitant about separation, including its repercussions, most notably the men from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and even Maryland, a.k.a. the Middle Colonies. Why the Middle Colonies? Well, I could tell you this much. There were many in Pennsylvania, a significant majority, who had strong ties to not just the king and the parliament, but had strong ties to um, businesses in England for whom they were dependent upon their goods and services for which they could not get anywhere else in the world. But then again, their loyal if your loyalties are to king and country, you are only going to invest in goods and services with England. Otherwise, why would, you, why would loyalty itself even exist? As a matter of fact, when my wife and I visited Betsy Ross's house, uh, the woman who was portraying Miss Betsy Ross gave us a great example. She was telling us a little story about how about how America was wanting to talk was wanting to consider separation from England. But she told us that the materials that she had to make the goods that people were requesting came from England. And she said that those whom needed these goods were loyal to the crown because all in the name of business purposes. Even Betsy herself said that the needles she used for going about making the, um, what do you call it, for making the um, artistry work on the cloth fabric came from a country village outside of London, England. The only place where she could obtain the, these particular needles. So that, to me, is a very, very tight um economical relationship that if broken where would someone like Betsy Ross have been able to have secured needles to go about doing the work that was essential for clients in Philadelphia who were dependent upon her service it's one thing to want separation from from England but for those who want to maintain their ties and who are hesitant about leaving, they are really the, they are in a small elite percent um, of society who um, who have had contact with high level people in England, who know how to maintain proper business ties. Whereas those who don't have any true economical stake would be more likely to do the opposite, and that is to renounce their allegiances to the crown. While looking at Assembly Hall and its furnishings was very surreal, as I thought to myself, 56 men pulled off something unthinkable by signing their lives away and renouncing their allegiance to the crown, a.k.a. King George III. I can't imagine being John Adams or Samuel Adams, John Hancock from Massachusetts, and meeting delegates as far south as South Carolina. As a matter of fact, histor historians do know that John Adams, the first group of uh, Southerners he met, were the delegates from South Carolina. It turns out that John Adams wasn't the biggest fan of Southerners. But I can't admit that if there were two men in particular that he probably had a very, very fond relationship who were from down south. Both of the men were from Virginia, Thomas Jefferson, and Jefferson's mentor from William and Mary, whom he studied law under, Mr. George Wythe. John Adams may not have had the same friendship with George Wythe as he did with Thomas Jefferson, but he um, had been quoted saying that George Wythe was a fine Virginian, a fine gentleman, and a man who knew how to get along with people 
regardless of where they um, hailed from. So I believe it is fair to say that the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence all knew how to compromise together, even if it meant having to let go of their differences in, in the name of uh, doing what was best, not just for themselves, but for what the future lied at stake for America. Well, as Benjamin Franklin said, we shall all come together as one or hang together separately. Or hang separately. As mentioned from earlier, uh, my wife and I spent six out of seven days venturing into Philadelphia's Old City District. Where did we venture to on the day not spent in the heart of Philadelphia? Anybody want to take a guess? Did we go to a neighboring county? There are four counties on the outskirts of Philadelphia. Bucks County, Delaware. We uh, lodged in Montgomery. And then there's Chester County to the south. Well, we drove to Bucks County and visited Washington Crossing Historic Park, the site where General George Washington and what was left of his Continental Army's forces crossed the Delaware River on Christmas night, 1776, and achieved the improbable. You know, when we think of 1776, we often think of it as a glorious year because we, you know, it's fair to say that, oh, we officially declared our separation from England as a means of what the Declaration of Independence had laid out. <coughs> I can say that that is a half-truth. However, while, it may, while as glorious as it is, considering the 56 men banded together as one by voting unanimously, unanimously to make July 4th our nation's official date for which we severed all direct ties with England, that same year, however, wasn't so kind to George Washington and his ragtag Continental Army. How so? From August to September of 1776, Washington's forces had been heavily routed in New York. They were heavily routed in battles ranging from Kipps Bay to Long, Long Island, uh, Brooklyn Heights. No matter where they went, the British were one step ahead. But it is fair to say that after the British had left Boston back in March of 1776, they were going to bring the whole nine yards with them when they came back, and that they did. They brought thousands and thousands of warships with them, thousands of soldiers. As a matter of fact, Washington looked out to the Hudson River from his telescope and was just in pure disbelief. Shock is probably the better word. Washington knew the British would come back. He knew they would probably come back in forces, in bigger forces or bigger numbers, but he probably didn't expect to see what he, the numbers that he saw. And it got so bad at one battle that men from Connecticut were running. They were running for their lives because they had never seen an enemy charging at them full speed with 18-inch bayonets already fixed at the at the end of their rifles. Washington was known Washington had been known to confront some of these men, even grab them by their shoulders and said, "Get back in line, get back in line and fight." And they were so scared they kept on running. Washington had finally said, "Are these the men that God gave me to fight this war with?" In other words, was I given boys or was I given men? So, Washington's forces from August to September of 1776 had been heavily routed in New York to where less than 2,500 remained committed to the cause. When fall changes to winter, European armies, remember we are fighting a a mighty European power, that being the mother country, England. When fall changes to winter, European armies cease their fighting and wait till spring 
How so? Because by spring, you're, the armies are rejuvenated. The armies are ready to go. The terrain is easier to navigate. However, General George Washington had no such, had no such luxury, given that desertions were rampant. Believe it or not, folks, soldiers were so fed up that they decided to defect over to the British side because they felt that they would get treated better. And probably in one way, yes, they would have been right about that in terms of better clothing, better uh, food access. After all, when you are serving in the mightiest empire in the world, pr certain provisions are going to be more accessible compared to serving in a makeshift continental army that has never even engaged in, in, the, in the kind of war that it's currently undergoing, even at the lowest moment in, of its existence. So desertions are rampant. Morale itself is sitting at an all-time low with enlistments about to expire. Through the help of a Tory spy named John Honeyman, Washington found his target spot being Trenton, New Jersey, which was manned by four regiments of Hessian soldiers led by Colonel Johann Rall. So a week earlier, before Christmas night of 1776, Washington's forces led surprise raids on Hessian units to where the Hessians themselves became less vigilant of their surroundings and more vulnerable to the inevitable. In other words, all these surprise raid attacks were stressing the Hessians out. They, it was stressing them out to where they no longer could keep up with these surprise attacks. Shouldn't this be a red flag for Colonel Johann Rall, if you asked me? Oh, I would agree so. I can only imagine what must have been going through George Washington's mindset knowing he was taking on an insurmountable risk. My wife and I learned on our behind-the-scenes tour that Washington's Delaware River crossing was marked by the following comment by Washington himself, victory or death. In other words, had Washington's men not attempted this Herculean mission, the experiment behind separation from England would have been extinguished. The Hessians, most notably Colonel Johann Rall, had been warned repeatedly by officers from within to better fortify Trenton. Fortify? How about adding extra cannons? Adding a couple of more redoubts? Adding a couple of other manning stations to look for any kind of um, signs of potential red flags. Colonel Johann Rall ignored all requests. He pretty much knew the American soldiers. In other words, he knew just how weak they were at New York. He knew that they could not put up a fight. He knew that they were white meat. Why go after an enemy that was so decimated in New York why believe anything that anybody else from within or even from outside would have said? You know, John Honeyman had been a spy, but now he is giving George Washington the utmost golden ticket there is. It's one thing to be a spy for someone, but it doesn't mean that spies are always on your side. December 26, 1776, just after 8 a.m., the inevitable went full scale as Washington's forces attacked Colonel Rawls' troops from all directions, resulting in the eventual capture of nearly 900 Hessians. But as for Colonel Rawl, he was the first of the Hessian, of the Hessian leadership to die. Colonel Rawl probably got what he deserved by not adhering to the warnings of his other officers just who were ranked below him but yet had had more knowledge of what was of what could happen in terms of of the inevitable than Rawl himself it might be fair to say that colonel johann rawl he was shot but he also was shot as a as a means of his ignorance 
there is a huge price to pay for being ignorant, even at this stage of the revolution. Although we weren't in Trenton, New Jersey, but I will say Trenton, New Jersey is not far from Philadelphia, my wife and I saw firsthand where some of Washington's forces began their top-secret mission at Washington Crossing Historic Park. And, of course, all of this would have taken place in 1776 during the uh, heart of winter. But one thing we did learn about the Delaware River is that um, the currents are very strong. And there was a ferry service operated. It was known as McConkie's Ferry. So in order to... Um, avoid being swept away from a current, there was a pulley system there that would um, secure one's ferry passage from point A to point B without getting swept away from the current. What a clever device it was back then. And it also probably prevented people not only from getting swept away, but from dying as well. Because even the currents alone are like the equivalent of undertows. Once they get a hold of you, there's no letting up. Of course, on Christmas night of 1776, there was no pulley system to, to lure, or not to lure, but to lead the men in the boats onto their mission. But there was a group of men from Marblehead, Massachusetts, who were the saviors, known as the Marbleheaders. They had been the ones whom helped guide Washington's men in New York to safety, and they would be, uh, once again, the proven uh, factor in rowing their boats back and forth to bring men onward to this uh, mission. So, yes, we did uh, see at Washington's Crossing Historic Park the um, parts of the Delaware River where George Washington and his... Um, forces who made it over we saw uh, where they would have be, where they would have started their mission especially not knowing what the end outcome would bring Washington's crossing and victory at Trenton not only restored morale to freedom's cause but the declaration of independence itself became more respectable amongst the American people in other words it's one thing to have written to, for um everyone to have come together to have signed this document in uh, declaring their separation from England. But a document itself can only go so far. A document can only have true meaning when her people, being that of an army, can defeat the mightiest empire in the world. One battle alone may not change the whole, may not change everything, but this battle saved the American Revolution from going completely extinguished, from being completely extinguished. If Washington and his men had not attempted to cross the Delaware River, had John Honeyman not come forward with the information that was needed to strike at the heart of the Hessians, um, where they were located, our separation from England would never have happened. In other words, we probably would have been returned back as subjects to the crown. So how does all of what I've shared with you all about the sites that we have, about some of these sites that my wife and I have visited pertain to um, anything that uh, would uh, be of freedom? Well, think about it. Carpenter's Hall was where delegates convened to discuss how to uh, to discuss what action or course of action to take in response to the coercive acts. Some of those men present were already thinking separation from England, but many were looking for ways to extend an olive branch to say, okay, we're not happy with what you have done, but we still do believe that there could be some reconciliation. If you would just listen to us, give us a chance. Well, unfortunately, that didn't happen, but what happened for these delegates was that they were able to freely come together as one without being suppressed from an outsider. That outsider being a tyrant in an institution 3,000 miles away, 
King George III and Parliament couldn't stop these men from attending. If they couldn't stop them from attending, then why are they um, depriving? Why are they depriving individuals of their fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? Congress Hall, it's where legislators could come together to debate, could come together to work out their differences. They could come together to, to make um, decisions that would not only just benefit themselves, but benefit the people they represented from their um, individual states. And of course, Independence Hall, where the next big steps were taken. Yes, there was the Olive Branch Tree Petition, but also coming together when all other options had failed, knowing that the only other choice available was separation from England. And then lastly, 1776, as I said, Washington's Crossing. Washington's Crossing showed that there that David could slew Goliath when least expected. It truly was a battle that saved the American Revolution. It saved it it basically led to a greater morale, great a large restoration in morale. Enlistments went back up. People believed in themselves. Sure, it would take another five to seven years before the war would come to an end, but for a brief moment, people felt good. They felt better about being Americans, and they also felt good knowing that the Declaration of Independence had some significant relevance to it. Well, for those of you who want to go to Philadelphia, I strongly recommend going. You won't miss out on anything. I know for a fact that my wife and I didn't miss out on anything. However, there were other places that we did not uh, get to. And we certainly do hope that the next time when we do go, that we can visit those places. But if you ask me, would I go back inside Independence Hall again? Absolutely. Would I go back inside and visit Carpenter's Hall? Yes. I would do the Museum of the American Revolution again. After all, I appreciate that era of history. So more than likely, if I go back again, I'll probably learn some things that, it, that I didn't know before. Thank you for letting me share with you all about Philadelphia and also what I mentioned earlier about Uriah Levy and the Levy family and for how they went about saving Thomas Jefferson's home, Monticello. And again, when you go to visit Monticello, have Uriah Levy and his nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, to thank. If it weren't for them there probably wouldn't be a Monticello standing today. Thank you again, as always, for listening. And when I'm back on the air again next, we will resume signing their rights away, the fame and misfortune of the men who signed the U.S. Constitution. Take care for now and stay safe. <laughs>